So, all right, Romans 12, I'll open up in prayer and let's look at it. Father, thank you so much for this, uh, your word and how you lay out sort of the starter kit for us to consider concepts, the concepts of love and how that works itself out spiritually in our own minds as we attempt to love our brethren, to love the world, the people in the world, and um, those who are lost, to love those who are saved and yet immature, those who are saved and mature, those who are in authority over us, those who are in authority under us. As your word gives us some good details and considerations, may we grow in wisdom, spiritual understanding, so as to be a blessing to you and to your body, the body of Jesus Christ. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to look at Romans 12 because we were, we were already in it and it flows out of the truth of the good news, right? So the if you remember the first two verses, or verses one and two, just by way of reminder, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the compassions or mercies of God to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship or your spiritual worship. So, again, the believer's life boils down to this simple thing, as a father, as a child, as a wife, as whatever. It's what we were talking about earlier in how it's living in reality. Living in reality is the goal of the believer, right? Living in reality. So, your goal as a believer, as a child of God, is to present your body in the reality that it exists, right? And accordingly, my spirit's going to be the one that's doing it because obviously either the Bible's written to someone who has a double personality or it's representing the spirit controlling the body or the mind of the spirit controlling the flesh's brain thinking. So you're always dividing those two out. It's very important to understand that division, that, that separation of truth there. So in this passage, he's reminding us because of the mercies of God. Mercies of the first eight chapters, right? Particularly chapters three, four, five, six, seven, and eight, where he lays out the good news and makes it very clear what the good news is. And then he points back to that reality and states this. Then he says, Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the new of your mind. Again, conformity is something that is a flesh thing, right? It's just a flesh thing. Because you can conform to the 80s, to the 90s, to the 2000s. You can conform to this, the, the, the kind of clothes you wear in the spring and in the summer and the fall and the winter. Conformity is a, is a fleshy, worldly concept. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's not good. But when it comes to spiritual worship and how you present your body and walk in this world as a child of God, he says, of course, don't conform. Now, that doesn't mean that by walking in the world as a light and all this stuff, it's not going to look sometimes like a normal life in the world because we're in the world and we have to, we have to adjust and fit into a certain level of conformity to the society that we're in. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the conformity of what he's about to say in a moment. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind in a few areas particularly so that you may prove or prove that which is the will of God, 
right? Three things, good as opposed to bad, acceptable as opposed to unacceptable, and perfect as opposed to a slightly imperfect moment or an imperfect moment, right? So your goal in not conforming is to present your body good as God would consider goodness, acceptable, because sometimes a situation isn't good, it's kind of bad, but it's an acceptable thing because of the circumstances that surround you. And he lays some of that stuff out in First Corinthians and other things where you just, you're adjusting to the world's evil. Without hypocrisy. Verse 9. Love without hypocrisy. Now, that's a simple truth. You can read that and go, yeah, I love that part. But that's the challenge. Because the way the world wants you to conform to love is you getting a piece of the action. That is to say, and I've used this illustration most of you have heard me say it, it's like the grandma who's trying to love someone in the family, love grandson, say. And so she knits him a sweater for Christmas, or buys him a sweater for Christmas that she thinks he would look good in. She doesn't know he likes it. He might not like it at all. Most likely he doesn't. Because yeah, turtle neck, whatever, some funky colors doesn't match but it's, oh I just saw this and thought you looked at it. Yeah, some maroon. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> and so, you know, she's attempting to love, but not accomplishing the act of love. Loving with hypocrisy generally will fail on the accomplishing the act of love area. Not all the time, but generally, because you're adding in something of value that you want in the, in, in the transaction. Like you want to take somebody out to, to for a birthday dinner, right? And so you take them to the place you want to eat, or you get them cake that you like so you can share it with them, as opposed to studying the person, figuring out, dialing it how an act of love be accomplished, and that means you may not get any pleasure, you may not like the thing that you're getting them. You may not even like the fact that they like it, give them bad breath, who knows? You know, I don't know, but the point is, is you may not like the color, you may not like the thing itself, you may not like the hobby. You know, you may not like what you're you're giving to the person, but an act of love is accomplishing a good, acceptable, and perfect act. Right? It's a good, acceptable, and perfect act, which takes you out of the equation. You may not even enjoy the act, but you know by doing it, you're or providing it or Encouraging, whatever it is you're doing, saying, providing, serving, you know that you're accomplishing the act of love. There's between loving someone, that's, and people say, well, I, I did it out of love. Yeah, because God gave you that love. Can anybody here say that they originated the love in their heart was Christ's love? Right? Nobody here can say, I was in the kitchen one day and I found some ingredients and I put it together and I drank this potion and voila, I gave myself the love of Christ in my heart. Right? It's impossible. What we did as salvation, it says the love of God was poured out into our hearts so that we love Him though we have not seen Him. Right? We love the, the Lord Jesus because God gave us His love for the Lord Jesus. So we love the Lord Jesus because God Himself poured His own love in our hearts, and we have this infectious love for Christ. It cannot be removed, 
cannot be taken away, it cannot be quenched. And so, because of that, we now have a desire, key word, we have a desire in the spirit to love. Okay? We have a desire in the spirit to love. But now, in the spirit, you have a choice when you go forward in your act of love to either conform to the world's expression of that desire or to be transformed in the mind and accomplish an act of love actually, which customizes love to the person. That might mean disciplining your kid. That might be providing something for your wife. That might mean whatever it means. Right? An act of love is customized to the person, whatever that means. However, that works itself out. It's a custom act. Because you have to know the person the best you can, investigate the person the best you can, then you have to look at what you can do, what, the, what time you have, what money you have, what provision you have, what it is, because our desire is to do the world for the people around us. But that doesn't mean we can do the world for the people around us, because we might not have the time, the money, or the wisdom. So, we have to do the best we can do with what we have that makes sense to our life, right? You get what you don't have, not what you have. You, don't, you give what you have, not what you don't have. You, you give the wisdom you have, you don't pretend to give the wisdom you don't have, you mess up somebody. If you can serve somebody, make sure that you actually know what you're doing as opposed to saying, I can do that and go jack it up. Cost them more time and money. So you gotta you can only love to the parameters of your skill, of your words, of your wisdom, of your wealth, of your ability. Right? You can't love past that unless you figure it out. Right? I want to make someone a cake, but if you've never made a cake before, it's going to be probably not the best accomplished act of love because it's going to be those nuances of uh, learning curve when you're trying to make something for someone or do something for someone that uh, it's not going to turn out so good. So hypocrisy is pretty common because I've, I've heard people many times argue with me against this but I, but I, but I want, I, but I want to be there. I want, I want to enjoy it. I want to see their face. I, I love surprises. This is a big one. People like, oh, I love giving surprises. Well, I love giving surprises too. But that's more about what I love. You say it in the very statement. You say, I love giving surprises. So it's about what I love, as opposed to about accomplishing an act of love to the person. Now, if you know a person very, very well, and you listen very, very carefully, you can actually surprise them. And you probably will, will will get them something or do something for them that they'll really appreciate. But that that's sometimes more of an advanced act of love because you have to investigate. You sometimes have to be sneaky about it, right? They're not looking. You look at the shoe size, whatever it is. You know, da, 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 da. you knock them over. I'll 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 run and check out the size of the shirt, whatever. In other words, you're, you distract them. And sometimes it, it takes a little bit to actually accomplish a surprise, and, and it's kind of fun, but it's not always feasible. And if it's not feasible, well, it's not feasible. But you're still, your goal is to accomplish an act of love, is to investigate. It happens a lot in husbands and wives when it comes to sinful things, or what kind of food you like in the morning, or whatever it is. Uh, your wife keeps changing the rules on you on building cabinets out there in the pantry. <laughs> I'm joking. 
I want to change it. I want to stay. I want to change it. I want to stay. I'm joking. Rebolling Mom is a good example of that, in that you're constantly trying to investigate what person, what your wife wants, and what facilitates your kids. Uh, and you're adjusting to that within the parameters of your ability and what makes sense to you in the bigger scheme of things. And on the timeline to have all those factors come into the view when it comes to accomplishing an act of love. And because of that, I always can love being like a martial art because in martial arts or in UFC, there's a move you need to make. And if you make the move, you accomplish the action and you protect yourself and you, you overcome your, your opponent. It, that, that move, not necessarily in the fight, but it's a move. And if you, there's, there's lots of different kicks. It's not just one kick, there's lots of kicks. There's not just one punch, there's lots of punches. There's lots of positions to put yourself in. There's lots of submission positions to put your, put your opponent in. There's lots of, of moves to be made. And you have to counter move and think about the chess game of the move in order to accomplish the act of, of uh, winning, right? Well, love is the same way because you're always adjusting yourself to the mood, to the person, to the temperament, to the time, to the climate, to the, to the wealth you have, to the timing you have, to the wisdom you have. You're always adjusting that. And so love working out unique in that moment. Now, you can't ever unlove somebody and not love God. Right? You have to love God first. You can't say, well, God wants to love everybody. No, he doesn't. Not that way he doesn't. That's conforming to the good world. He wants you to love according to the way his love would look. That would both love him, honor and love Christ, and then if you can love God and honor and love Christ, then you can show the act of love that this person would enjoy. Otherwise, you have to love God, love Christ, and show this person the act of love that they will not enjoy. Because what if they're evil? What if they want you to, to, to go about in their life that is not fitting? Right? What if they want you to rejoice in unrighteousness? They want you to bleed in the gossip that they share. Right? They want you to, to back up their faulty thinking. Oh, people can be saved apart from Jesus. If you tell them no, they can't. They do not feel love. You cannot love people according to their prescription. But am I loving them if I tell them the truth? Yes, I am. But based on whose version of love? God's version of love. And my version, because my version is God's version. Because God's word tells me his version. And his version is speak the truth in Love. Right? So, but if a person does not like the love you give and you actually accomplish the act of love, should you feel contented and happy? Yeah. Even if the person is calling you names, even if they're attacking your integrity, even if they're saying awful things, you still have to sit and be content. It doesn't mean you're happy with the circumstances, it just means you're happy with yourself. You sleep at night, you can get up, go to bed, and you can enjoy your life 
you're not burdened down by the feeling of guilt or or shame or or, or sadness of not accomplishing love. You know you accomplish love if you have loved God and loved Christ. You know then you will have accomplished love to that person because you will have either customized it to the person or you will have stood against the person if that is the circumstance that is required. Concept of just loving everybody is ridiculous. That's why he says the next statement, right? Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Notice the word abhor, right? That is almost out of my head. In other words, abhor is almost like, oh, right? Like, oh, it's, it's a feeling word. Right? It comes with a feeling. It's like the word wrath. That's why you are to you are to um, be angry, but don't sin. Right? You can also say abhor what is evil, but don't sin. Because abhorring is a deep-seated emotion of disgust. Right? And so he's, you might. But what if you came out of the world where you sympathize for people whom you should abhor? Then you have to put on and present your flesh as one that does abhor evil, even if you, in your emotional, physical state, sympathize with evil. Right? Many alcoholics, people come out of drugs, they overly sympathize with people who struggle with such things, and so they don't abhor them. Not abhor the evil. They make excuses for it. You mean like supporting it's like the people that are coming out of excusing the poor? I'm talking about the way somebody might speak to you about you give them the gospel, and you don't understand brother, blah blah blah. In other words, you can sympathize and give credit to the person's testimony that they believe like most unbelievers are gonna tell you, they're gonna ask you for help and then tell you how to fix them. I don't know how to fix myself, I'm broken forever. And you tell them what needs to be fixed and how to fix it. They're like, oh, that's not real, oh, this is what needs to be done. Well, you're so smart, why didn't you fix yourself 20 years ago, right? Everybody everybody knows nothing until you tell them the truth and all of a sudden they know how to fix it and you're wrong. So, uh, but avoiding what is evil because you're dealing with a presuppositional evil, right? You know, behaviors that are evil, but those behaviors come out of a mindset. And they come out of a, uh, they're lost. They come out of a lost predisposition of just this person's fallen, and they have sown corruption to the flesh. They're reaping the corruption in the flesh, but whether they're gossips or whether they're alcoholics or whether they're, they're you know religious people who are uh, the, the Pharisees or the Sadducees or whatever it is, whatever evil it is, because Jesus dealt with the religious evil and he abhorred it. Right? And the testimony that is seen on the face of the Gospel of John for sure. Just read John. <laughs> and you'll see. Oh, he aborted it there. Oh, he really said some stuff there. Oh, he aborted it right there. He's constantly aborted, and he's constantly cleaning the one good. Because he's constantly saying, My father is at work, I'm working with him. My, I hear what my father says, I repeat it. You know, whatever I, I hear in my ears, that's what I speak. Whatever I, I know to be true in God's word, that's what I'm telling you. So he was constantly giving them the truth. Right? He was constantly abhorring what is evil. Um, he wasn't trying to be mean, but in a dark world, John 15, 
the children of the world are going to persecuted him. You're not above your master. They're going to persecute you. Because if you don't validate evil because you have to abhor it, then you're going to get persecuted for that at some point. At some point, in some way, whether it's be the worldly side of things, like the Corinthians, or it's the religious side of things, like James or or whatever. So eventually you're going to you're going to be judged for abhorring evil. Um, I mean, just think in terms of yeah, the people that you know, that you've dealt with. When you have stood against their evil and you have abhorred it, and it's been there's been a visit, you've had to speak to that. Because abhorring isn't just like, and you walk away. It's the moment that you're loving the person, speaking the truth in love, right? So you're having to represent the truth against the evil. Then we end up the bad guys. Huh? Then we end up the bad guys. And you end up the bad guy because, oh, you're not very loving. Yeah. Not very loving. Your Jesus is not very loving. I'd say, yeah, he's not very loving sometimes. Not in the way you want to be loved, right? Yeah. In fact, 100% he's not loving in the way that most people want to be loved. He's loving in the way God defines he should love people, right? And his love is much greater than the love that they require because his love brought him to die on a cross to, to take on the curse of the law, right? His love is great. It's not the petty kind of love like, I prayed for a horse and he didn't give it to me when I was six and I haven't been mad at him ever since. Or my boyfriend broke up with me in high school and I'm dying ever since. Whatever, so it's nonsense, right? I'm praying for this, that, and the other thing. So, you know, abhorring what is evil is, my point, is a choice, right? Because we're going back to the first verse. You're presenting your body as a living. It's alive to God. It's a holy, it's holy but it's neither living nor holy, but you're presenting it living and holy. That means my physical disposition I must present as one that abhors evil, though inside my brain I might be sympathizing toward the evil. Do you understand that? Yeah. It's very important to get that point. You have, in order to walk as a priest of God, Lord, you have to present your flesh against your flesh. So how does compassion play into that then in terms of, I mean, we've all had our own journey of walking through evil, you know, as fallen people. Mm -hmm. So then where does the compassion piece? Well, compassion never ends. It starts when you share the good news. It starts when compassion is there while you're abhorring. It's not something that remove, is removed from the circumstance. Mm -hmm. Compassion is, is, a, is, a is a perpetual thread of existence. Mm -hmm. So, but in, in fact, when you see... A perfect illustration of that is when Jesus uh, told the young ruler, you know, to sell everything he had and give it to the poor, and he walked away, right? And it says Jesus was sad, right? His compassion never ended. He knew he was going to put this guy in a bind, and he knew he was going to walk away. And But he was sad over it, you know. It, it bummed him out greatly, and I feel the same way. When Just because I stand against someone, and I might have to stand abhorring what is cleanly and what is good— doesn't mean I'm not compassionate. It just means that I have to follow through with the good news. I know the good news is going to going to be the condemnation over him, right? That the good news is is telling him, hey, believe me, believe me, believe me. This is what God believes, what Christ believes. And if they reject that, what Hebrews says is if you reject this, there's no other sacrifice for you. 
There's no other means to God for you. Therefore, now the good news becomes a sense of bad news, which is why 2 Corinthians says it becomes an odious smell rather than a good smell to the world, right? Because it says the children of God are an odious smell to those who are perishing, but are a beautiful smell to those who are being saved, right? So that's just a presuppositional truth. So if you are walking out your love accurately, you're going to abhor what is evil naturally, but you're also going to cling to what is good. Those who love good are going to love your actions inevitably, eventually, and they're going to, and those who don't are not going to. But that doesn't mean you're not still walking with a sense of compassion. We all want everybody to be saved. We all want everybody to fall into the, the uh, uh, to experience the love of God. Jesus did too. But just because you want that doesn't mean, I mean, didn't even say himself, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if I, you know, I, would, I wanted to be like a hen who gathered you together, but you would not. And he goes, okay, and I recognize that, and I'm now living on that basis. I'm not going to keep pretending, like I just need to sit up here like a mother hen and begging and begging and begging and begging and begging people to come over and get under my wings. You would not. This is a circumstance we're in. And lost people are lost until they're saved. And so, um, and believers are, are, you know, God is opposed to even them when they're proud until they're no longer proud. So I can't, even a believer, I can't save them from that moment, right? They have to be crushed by God or Christ. They have to be disciplined by him in Hebrews 12, he said. Then that's the case, right? I've got to back up and let the hammer fall. So whatever it, it is, it might look like, oh, I've abandoned them. No, I'm not their father. I'm not their savior. I'm a representative of the father and of the savior from a re reiterative standpoint. And I don't, you know, I don't have any, uh, any giftedness past that point just to reiterate what was written. And so the... Uh, the goal is to love them according to the gifts I have, not thinking more highly of myself than I ought, and to present my body according to the reality of the moment. I remember there was a, I don't know what the movie was, but I thought it was just the most beautiful, I think I, I recorded it. There was um, a grandmother out working the garden, and the granddaughter was this, this it was no good, right? And she, was, she came to visit the grandma like, out of nowhere, right? to manipulate her into giving her some money, right? And the grandmother's in the garden. I, I wish I knew the movie. I'd love to have a clip. It, to me, it's the perfect example of compassion, but with sound judgment. And the granddaughter's playing this little game. And she goes, you know, basically like, no, you're not. She called her out on it. And she says, but that's okay. And she goes, she goes come over here. And she just calls her out, just totally like strips her granddaughter bare of, of the bullcrap that she's, you know, presenting in the moment. And she does it with this grace, right? And she walks over and she goes, come here. And she goes to her garden and she digs up this little box. And she pulls out like 10 grand or something. And she goes, here you go, sweetheart. She goes, you know, I hope, I hope that you find happiness and whatever, da 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 And then she goes and gives her a kiss, and sends her on her way, and she goes back to gardening. In other words, she, she abhorred what is evil. She, she actually did an act of love, not that I necessarily would have condoned that part of it, but, but just the, the kind of temperament, the, the straightforward discussion she had, the, 
oh, that's nice, but you're lying, and, you know, basically you're not touched. She didn't do it that way, but, you know, it was a very gracious way. And, and she did love her in a way she felt she needed to love her. And then she went back to her life when the granddaughter left. And it was like this, this contrast, right, of this extremely grounded person who loved and was sacrificial and even to the point of loving past what love should have probably been given, but just did it anyway, right? The way, the way God loves the sinner, you know? The sinner is always trying to manipulate God, and yet God still gives them a good job and gives them uh, provisions for their wife and their children and provides and, and gives them a, a future, right? So even the sinners are blessed by God. They don't even know it. And so she acted like that in a way. She acted like like you would toward it, like God does toward a sinner. And, um, and sent her on her way. And it was a beautiful thing. And I thought, yeah, that is a perfect, you know, theatrical example of, of, of speaking the truth in love, right? Speaking the truth in love is amazing. So you never lose compassion. It, you only lose compassion if you feel like your job is to bring about a difference of behavior, okay? Remember that. You only lose compassion if you feel like your job is to bring about a difference of behavior. And you don't even have to, don't even have to lose it then. But if you are bound to that, especially if, if, like if you're in authority as a mom or dad, you do have to bring about a difference of behavior. And you don't have to lose your compassion to do it because they're under your authority. Right? If you're a boss and you have people under you, you can bring about a difference of behavior and still have compassion. And you know you're responsible to do it. But if it's a peership relationship, then a lot of times we that's where it oversteps the, the bounds. Whether it's someone like a family member, someone that we want to accept us, or we want to be saved, or we want something from them. And, and it, it, what we want is good. But it's when you, that's when it's easy to lose the compassion. Because that's when it's, it's, it becomes this fight, this struggle to get the uh, what you want, and you always have to come empty with empty desires to accomplish love. Like you know, James one, it's desire that leads you to sin. So you have to you have to come with open hands and come with a with a no expectations in order to accomplish love in people's lives, uh, and and that means it's less personally fulfilling, right? Giving acts of love in general will be less personally fulfilling because you want the act of love to accomplish something unless the person, it, it truly is, you know, uh, you, you, again, you get to know them well enough to, to, to participate in some way or another. It's not that it's not fulfilling, though. Right? If, so, if you investigate and you take someone and you say, hey, I don't know what you might want. Here's my idea, blah, blah, blah. Here's what I can do. And you you do some act of love for somebody. It's still fulfilling because you get to you get to see them struggle through, of course, the concept of being given or provided or served or whatever it is. Um, it's still very fulfilling. It's just a matter of whether or not it's 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 fulfilling according to the way you were raised, right? And I know some people. I, I, I emphasize this. Some people. Who literally feel like they don't accomplish love unless they, they uh, or they don't want to love really unless it can be a surprise or it can be this big thing and it becomes stressful and focused and 
and all this stuff, and, it, and it's nonsense, you know, huh? Well, no, what I, the reason there's emotion, not because of any experience I've had from you or my family, anything like that, it's because of the pain or the, um, the cruelty that I've seen imposed on people. Number one, because a, a husband or a wife wanted to do something for the other party or a friend wanted to do something for somebody, and they, but they wanted it to, they wanted the person, here's the trick, right? The person doing, giving the gift, once the person receiving it, they want desperately for them to be just as excited or more excited than they are for the thing they're giving, right? But you're not because you didn't know anything about it and you did, you're processing whether you even want this or it's going to the goodwill, right? Or you can re-gift it. Who in my life wants something like this? Right? And they're like, isn't this great? And you're like, oh, you're like, am I lying right now? Am I dishonoring the Lord Jesus because I'm saying this is wonderful? Maybe I can, I can some sort of justify that this is wonderful in some wonderful sort of way, but it's not really wonderful for me. You're sitting there debating on whether or not you're sending to even tell anybody this is wonderful. But, and so you find yourself in this dilemma. You know good and well if you say, well, it's not really what I wanted. They'll be like, how could you say that? It was a gift and it was free. You didn't have to pay for it. You know, you know, like uh, people will do that nonsense. Like, well, that was uh, pretty selfish, or that was, uh, they, they didn't, you know, it was a free gift. I mean, should a person who gets a free gift expect to get the color that they wanted? No! Condemn them to Hades for wanting a color that they want. They should want the color I want. I bought it. In fact, when I go down the street and I look at the car I got them, it should please me because I purchased it and I should smile when I walk by. Or if I see them walking by in the jacket I bought them, I should go, what a lovely jacket they have on. Ha <laughs> ha, I got it for them. Of course, they shouldn't care at all about it. It should be all about me. And that's the attitude. Right? And they're like, well, no, that's not what I'm thinking at all. I'm just trying to love them. And, you know, I'm just trying to love it. I love them. And I, I know. And then people get all freaked out, right? So when you, people are so, some of them, some people are so caught up in the concept and the excitement, it's or, or, orgasmic uh, on surprising people or getting them something that they're, they are true, deep, rich, mature hypocrites, right? They don't know it, but they are. <laughs> And what'd you say? And grandmas are some of the worst. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're like, especially old school, old school ones, you know, to knit the stuff. You know, I used to knit the thingy. And um, I, I got you a quilt. If you've been using, <laughs> you've been using this quilt, I, I, I knitted you. It's got the fancy dancers on it and stuff. Yeah, yeah, we got that on the bed. It's a show <laughs> item. <laughs> Use that all the time. That is, that, is that is a literal example. This is my grandmother. Who is has passed, and I can say this now without her ever seeing it. <laughs> Knitted us this wedding or this uh, this quilt for our after our wedding. Had some dance, the ballroom dancer style people on it and whatnot, and it was you know patched up. This quilt, this handmade quilt. That's handmade. You ever see that, Mom? Oh, it's handmade. You know? Oh well, yeah, the hands made it. What do you know? That's uh, that makes it more special. I should I should automatically then my flesh. I love it now. Whoa! I redecorate my entire house around this quilt. It's the most magnificent thing I've ever seen. So it's uh, you know it's ludicrous, right? When rather than her going, hey, I'd like to do you guys a quilt. 
give you, make you a quilt for your for your wedding? Is there a color, a pattern, something you would like that, um, you know, I have my ideas. I'd like to do this, that, and the other thing. But if you don't like any of my ideas, tell me what you want. I'll give it for you. And that way it's like, okay, now you're accomplishing an act of love. You're humble. You're humbling yourself, saying, I don't know what these people want. And I want to give them something that they want. I want to do something for them that is profitable. Right? Is that a person or is that a TV? Uh oh, death and destruction. I mean, she tripped over something. And all the, all the, all the lives are checking out. Which kid is bleeding? I heard. I heard something. Yeah. All parents heard Yeah, yeah. I got the bad ears. I heard it, but I, I thought it was in there. I thought, I thought it could be in there. Yeah. So. <laughs> I know. That's like Wise man. <laughs> so, what time is it? Okay, we'll wrap up here in a second. We'll look at this second little verse here. All right, we'll look at a few more verses and we'll, we may come back to it next week. But this is be devoted or being devoted, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Again, why does he say brotherly love? Of course, to the, the believers we're primarily speaking to right here. Um, and because brotherly love is more personal and emotional. Agape love is just you love your enemy, you love your friend, you love a dog, you love whatever. Agape love is God's love toward creation. So you, would, you don't have to like them in order to love them, you whatever. Agape love is just love. And it's the purest and most direct form. It's, it's unemotional. Whereas it can be. It can be very emotional, but it, it, it doesn't require affection. Whereas brotherly love requires affection. Because brotherly love is defined, the concept of it, by the affection of you have for a family member. We have uh, disturbance in the force. They have nowhere to sit, so they're tending to get sitting on equipment. Oh, that should have been made clear, not to do. Yeah, that's nice. They should be sitting on the floor. Yes. Gotcha. Right. Radio. Okay. So, brotherly love. Is something again. What does he say in say Colossians? We looked at that before. Put on a heart of compassion. Have brotherly love. Those are things you put on. You put on a, a heart of compassion. You put on brotherly love. And here, same thing, be devoted to one another, brother. It's a choice you're making. Because not all family members you like equally. If you have a bigger family, you, know, you have four or five brothers or four sisters and whatnot, you're gonna like some brothers more than others. You're going to like some sisters more than others. So he says to be devoted to the concept of brotherly love with one another. So you're devoted to it, which is a family kind of love. Kind of love. And I think that's fairly natural for believers. Because we're like, hey, hugs and praying and we have affection. We don't just come in with a stiff, you know, hello, how are you, you know. 
kind of love. It's we actually care for one another and we care about each other's lives. And if somebody needs help, we help them uh, in whatever way, uh, service or whatever that means. We work it out. And so brotherly love would, would, would extend past just the basic agape love. And um, we'll talk about this last statement here because this is important. And this goes back to what I was saying in hypocrisy because loving without hypocrisy is talking about all these things. And we'll talk more about brotherly love next time. But it says, give preference to one another in honor. There's the statement that represents the truth I've been speaking about. Give preference to one another in honor, right? So the love would work itself out by giving preference to someone else by honoring them based upon what they want or what they prefer, right? So you're giving someone a preference if you can. Now, that can be taken to a selfish extreme or a foolish extreme, like between a husband and a wife, I want to enjoy my house, but I want Beth to enjoy her house. So as we build a house together, I want her preferences to be met as much as they can, and I want my preferences to be met as much as they can. But that means we have to come together and find what we consider our preferences, not just her preference and my preference, but our preferences. And so that's how love would, can't, would work itself out mutually in circumstances of a, of a home. Sometimes I care about things strongly. Sometimes I don't care much at all. And sometimes she wears me down to the point where I stop caring about things strongly <laughs> and she gets what she wants anyway. <laughs> there's, some, there's some truth to that. I start out of the gate caring and then I'm like, okay, I'm just, but whatever. Just, I just want to get through this, this house. It's been a year. So. That's so funny. But true. <laughs> but give preference to one another. And honor means that you become skilled. You become... You become skilled at paying attention to the preferences of others. You do investigation, trying to understand the person. And that means not suggesting your preferences, right? To truly understand the preferences of others is to investigate their preferences and seek to bless them or to honor them. That's why it says in the last part, not lagging behind in diligence, right? What, why would you lag behind in diligence? You know, the world, our time, our selfishness, whatever, right? Because in order to love someone based upon their preference, it means you have to be diligent to understand the person. That means you have to put, you have to make time to do it. You have to specifically design your, your time to accomplish learning about the person. That's why it says fervent in spirit, right? Fervent in spirit, passionate about it. In other words, our flesh sometimes will not want to sacrifice in this way. So that means your spirit, going back to verse 1, is going to have to present your body as a living sacrifice and be fervent in spirit, strong in spirit, so that you accomplish the diligent act of understanding the people around you so that you can actually accomplish an act of love that is based upon the preferences of 
the people that you're trying to love and serve. That's why it says serving who? Serving the Lord. You're serving the Lord. So when you act, do an act of love to somebody, who are you loving? The Lord. Who are you serving? The Lord. Right. Again, that's the mindset we were talking about, the, the Trinity, right? And what do you constantly see when you, like Ephesians 5, 2, or 1 Peter, all these passages that talk about, it's you're, you're, you're loving as Christ loved, who presented himself to God as a, fragrant, a sacrifice and a fragrant aroma to God, right? He presented himself to God. So he loved us, but he was thinking of God. He loved us, but he was thinking of the Father. And so if we're really presenting our body as a spiritual sacrifice, we'll be loving others, but we'll be thinking of Christ. And we'll be thinking of the Father. This is how Christ would have me love. This is how the Father would have me love. This is what their love would, would look like through my life. Right? Serving the Lord in this act of love. Because I'm serving, if I'm not serving the Lord, I'm serving myself. That's the difference. And so this passage is just, it just is a continuation of the logical thought of implications, given a sort of a cheat sheet a little bit of one, as we kickstart love in our lives and go forward from being saved and now walking as priests on the earth. And what is our priesthood? What do we do as priests? What is it? It's not a trick question. Verse one, I'll give you a hint. <laughs> Kara, you're usually sharp. So, Kara, yes, you're presenting your body. What is our priesthood? Presenting our body. Right? Offering up spiritual sacrifices. We're living stones in God's temple and his household. Right? So this priesthood is simply this. Presenting our body. It's not going to church on Sunday. It's not whatever. It's presenting our body. If that means worshiping together, that's what it means. If it means singing to him, that's what it means. If it means being a husband, a, a leader, and a head of your home, that's what it means. If it means supporting the husband, that's what it means. That means presenting your body in a way that's pleasing, good, acceptable, and perfect before the Lord. Because ultimately, you're serving the Lord in everything, right? Remember the passage says in, in Colossians, think, in everything you do, do it as unto the Lord. In everything. It's in Colossians 3. So this is one of those moments, and you see it again in, like in Ephesians 6, where he says, serving the Lord. When you're serving your boss, who are you serving? The Lord. Right? You're serving the Lord. And wives are to fear their husbands as unto the Lord. Right? They're doing it to the Lord. So, because my goal in life is to, is not just to exist, but it's to accomplish being the extension of Christ on the earth. We are his hands, we are his, we are his feet, right? We're his voice. So, we have to accomplish that. And if, that should be natural to your heart. As a child of God, that is the natural vibe and should be the natural vibe within you. If it's not, then you need to stir up your faith and consider, you know, the weakness of your faith and strengthen your mind and renew your mind so that you may approve that, which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Renewing the mind is knowledge. Get the, get the knowledge in the head. Get the knowledge in the new mind.
we'll um, we'll stop there because uh, well, so much good to say here. Let me read the next verse. Rejoice, rejoicing in hope, persevering. No, okay, we'll stop. We'll stop at verse eleven because I want to I want to back up and go forward a little bit next time and um, get to some of my favorite passages here that you've heard me quote a million zillion times uh, when giving you counsel. Anybody have any questions on this so far? Yes, yes. Uh, I have a question in chapter 10. Uh-huh. Well, you're, it's a quote from the Old Testament, but the, um, it's the concept of, I want to hear it from their own mouth, right? Don't say in your heart, who will send into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, the Messiah down, or who will send into the abyss or hell, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. In other words... You don't need to find him personally and bring him to your face to tell you the truth. Why? He says, what does the scripture say? What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. So the apostles have preached the truth. There's no need to go find Jesus, to find the Messiah, particularly because he uses the concept of the, of the Messiah here, right? The Christ. No need to go up and find him to hear what he has to say or go down. But it's in your heart, if it is, right? Because it wasn't in the heart of a lot of those who, who heard, right? But if you were being called by God, when the word of God spoke, it was in your heart and you heard it. You heard it. Then that's why he says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. He goes on to talk about that. In other words, you... If you're, if you're a snotty little guy who's constantly saying, well, if Jesus would come tell me. I've heard people say that before. Well, if Jesus would just come tell me and I'd believe. What does the word, what does the scripture say? The gospel is the power of God into salvation. And that no clever speech, that's Romans 1, 6, and following, and in no clever speech in 1 Corinthians 1, no craftiness of words, no cleverness of speech, no convincing anybody from my own oratory skills or presuppositional prowess or my scholastic endeavors will possibly ever lead someone to salvation, right? But it's the power of God and the word of God and I am, can have no power. I have no power other than giving them the word and if God is at work and the word of God is there and I accurately deliver it, then now there's boom, there's power exerted and salvation can come forth. And the person, if they hear it, will want it. Right, they will want it. Okay. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. Anybody else? Mother? Oh, I just saw this stuff that was uh, like I don't know who's wording that at the moment, but like it must make more sense in their mind. <laughs> 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 
It yeah. Like, it was like a saying back in the day or something. What? Just that whole section. That little section yeah. of Romans 10. Yeah. Now that you say it, it makes yeah. sense. I was like, I've never thought that, like that. Like, oh, who's to say in their head? Like, most of the time, I've heard people that. say, you know. No, uh, I've heard what you said. Yeah, yeah. But nobody ever worded it like that. And I know, but like, but that's written, you know, three thousand years ago. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Deuteronomy. Exactly. So I believe it's Deuteronomy. Yeah. So yeah. funny, huh? <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, let me pray and close this out. Father, thank you for this night. We pray your blessing upon us as we leave this place, that we would continue to grow in the great grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ so as to walk out our love based upon that true knowledge of Christ in a mature and godly way, both being a blessing to people, even when they don't know we are, but yet always a blessing to you, seeking to mature in our love so that amongst the brethren we do accomplish acts of love that are personal and intentional and truly bring help and good to those around us that customize. And if we can surprise each other with good acts of love and give us the wisdom to do that and the understanding and give us the wisdom to always give gift receipts. <laughs> 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 I'm joking. Father, thank you for your love, the love you've given us that gives us the ability to love one another and to love you and to love your son, Jesus Christ. And we uh, pray that you enrich it, that our love would be the testimony that you are here and that your gospel would ring forth consequently. And so we pray in Jesus' name.